we dive in, let me take another moment and just welcome you to Crosspoint, especially if you're new. Uh, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we're so grateful to have you hanging out with us today. Uh, also, just want to say a quick welcome to all of our 5 o'clock people that are watching right now. Hope you guys are doing awesome. Uh, but if you have a Bible or a device with some kind of app on it, grab those things, and let's head to Acts chapter 6 together. Acts 6, uh, we're in week 14 of a series in the book of Acts which means we've got a couple of weeks left before we shut it down for a little while. Uh, I told you when we first kicked it off, if you've been around our church, that we were going to go seven chapters into the book and then stop. And some, at some point in the future, we'll come back to it because I, I love Acts and we need to keep going. I don't want to leave you hanging, all right? But for now, Acts 6, and we're going to pick up in a few moments and start reading in verse 1, okay? Uh, a couple years ago, I had a mentor in my life share what I thought was a brilliant analogy with me and some other young pastors about how churches need to function differently at different sizes. And some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to share it again anyway because it's going to help us really get into our passage, all right? Uh, the analogy was one of sports teams, and specifically golf, basketball, and football teams. Now, if you think about each of these sports, the primary goal isn't all that different, right? Golf, hit the ball into a cup. Basketball, shoot a ball through a basket football, get a ball into an end zone, right? The primary goal of each sport is to move a ball to someplace it's not in order to score points. But when you get into the details of each game, you start to, to, to see and understand very quickly that they differ greatly in both relational and strategic complexity. And I'll explain what I mean. All right, golf. Uh, how many golfers do we have in the room? Right, it's Bartow County, so we don't have a lot of golfers hanging out with us today, but for those of you who play golf, you know that golf is a very relational game, right? If you've ever played on a team, chances are you were playing with a bunch of guys or a bunch of women who were really close friends. Uh, you're sharing a cart. You're driving hole-to-hole together. Everybody's given their input on how the game should be played, even when other people don't really want to hear it, right? It's still there. But golf, very relational and not very complex strategically, uh, it's a difficult game that'll make you want to throw your clubs into the woods at times. But the game in and of itself, again, not all that complex. Now, basketball similar somewhat in a relational manner, um, but it's definitely more complex in a strategic way, okay? Uh, I grew up playing ball, so I understand this a little bit. But on a basketball team, you usually have 8 to 10 guys or 8 to 10 girls. And, and basketball players are pretty close, but they're probably not as close relationally as a football team. You'll probably have a few other players that you're really tight with, but you're not going to be best friends with everybody, but it's still a relational game. Everybody's going to the same team meetings, they're playing the same game on the same court, uh, they're on the same bus dra- traveling to, to games together, uh, but a uniqueness of basketball is this. The roles on a basketball time, team tend to be a little more specialized. So you've got the shorter, faster guys who have great ball handling skills, running the point guard position. Your best shooters are typically playing the guard positions. And then you got the tall guys who you know, are great at rebounding and dunking on people's faces, playing either center or forward somewhere under the basket. Again, a little more complex than golf, but not a ton. Now, football is where things change dramatically. Football is nowhere nearly as relational as the other two games, and that's due to the sheer number of players on the team. Right, an instant, uh, for instance, on an NFL team, you can have 53 men on your active roster, which means if I'm one of those guys, 
I'm probably going to have a few buddies on the team who I'm tight with, but I'm not going to be best friends with everybody. There might even be guys on the team that I don't even know. Now, another uniqueness of football is this. Even though it's one team, it's made up of a subset of teams. You have offense, you have defense, you have special teams. And within those teams, you find very specialized players, highly specialized players, being led by highly specialized coaches. And here's what's so interesting. When you look at the offensive line, defensive line, running backs, wide receivers, quarterbacks, uh, you know, list goes on and on, linebackers, what you'll see oftentimes is that they're sitting in different meetings, they're practicing separately on different portions of the field, um, different subsets of these teams might travel in different buses to games. You know, it's really unique. The, the crazy thing is that nobody seems to care about the divisions that exist. Offense isn't worried about what defense is doing. Defense isn't worried about what offense is doing. Nobody knows what special teams is doing. You know, they're like taking naps and kicking balls around. But, but it's interesting to me that football's like this. Even when a certain part of the team is on the field, you know, you might have another part of the team hanging out on the sideline not even paying attention. They're huddled up with their coach talking through their strategy uh, concerning the next set of plays. Now, look, if we wanted to boil this analogy down to one simple statement, we could say it like this. Uh, the larger it gets, so the larger the team gets or the larger the sport gets, the more complex it becomes. Now, look, if you've ever been a part of any type of growing organization, you know that this is true, not only of sports teams, but of any organization, right? And look up here. Same thing is true of a church. You see, when a church is smaller in size, it can function or operate much like a golf team. It's very relational. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everything that's going on. And in a lot of those churches, people can speak up and voice their ideas and, and opinions on how certain decisions need to be made and, uh, and when they need to be made. Very relational at that size. Now, as a church grows, it becomes more complex and it can't operate like a golf team any longer. It has to start operating more like a basketball team, right? It's still relational, but probably not as relational. You might have some really close friends, but you're not going to be really close friends with everybody. Also, at that size, uh, both members and leaders alike, they are forced to move into more specialized roles. Everybody's playing the same game still. We all have one common goal, but based on giftings, people start to share the load in very intentional and strategic ways. But listen, when you get to football, church grows large enough where it's got to start functioning like a football team, that's when things start to get really complex because at that stage of the game, everybody loses some stuff. And I don't just mean the people in the seats. I mean even guys like me who lead churches like ours, even I lose some stuff. So what do we all lose? Well, three things in particular. Here they are. Uh, first is power. Well, I used to have more power. I used to be in more control of, of certain things. I used to have more of a voice at the decision-making table. And now as things have grown and they've gotten more complex, I don't feel like I'm in as, con uh, in as much of, of control of certain things. Prestige. You know, I used to know more. Used to know more about what was going on. Uh, used to know more people, more people know me. And now that we've grown and gotten bigger, I don't feel like I know as much. And then preference. You know, I, I like the way we used to do some things. And we've killed them, and we've changed them, and we've started some new stuff. And, and I really preferred the way we used to do it, and so I wish we could really keep doing it like I, I used to, to like it, right? Now, look, you're smart people, so you get this, but I'm going to point it out anyway. When a church grows and things become more complex... 
and these things are lost, it creates major tension in the life of that church. And if a church isn't careful, that tension can absolutely tear it apart. And that's what makes today's message so important. Listen, I need you to understand today, especially if you're new here to Crosspoint, that our church these days functions a lot like a football team. All right, on Sundays, we have between 12 and 1,300 people walking through our doors on average. Uh, we have 14 people on our staff, including our interns. We've got an elder team that guards the doctrine and direction of our church, a stewardship team that oversees all the finances of our church. And then we've got multiple people from within the church that serve as coordinators and coaches in various ministries. So it's complex here. Um, it kind of has to be. And here's the reality. As we continue growing and we reach more people, which I pray we reach more people. Jesus really likes it when his church grows. You should know that. As we grow and we reach more people, things will only become more complex, which is why you and I need to understand how to manage and embrace that complexity in a way that not only honors God, but helps us as God's people to remain committed to one another and to the mission he's given us as his church. And so the question is, how in the world do we do that? How do we do that? Well, that's the question we're going to answer from Acts 6, all right? So if you have your Bibles ready, we're going to read in a moment, starting in verse 1. Uh, I'll give you a little context before we do, okay? Um, it's believed that this incident we're about to look at in Acts 6 happened about five years after what took place in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit showed up. The New Testament church was born. 3,000 people came to faith in one day. An incredible, incredible chapter of the Bible and so think about it, in five years, you've gone now from Acts 2 to Acts 6, and the church has grown considerably in number. And as it's grown, it's gotten more complex, and as complexity has grown, well, some administrative issues have developed, and one of those issues are described for us here. So let's check it out. Acts 6, starting in verse 1, says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, there's the growth that I was talking about. They were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we'll stop there and talk for a moment. There's a problem happening in this church. Did you catch it? You have a group known as the Hellenists who are complaining against the Hebrews. And I know it's hard to believe that Jesus-loving, church-going people would ever complain about anything. But it happens, you know. Um, some of you might even leave complaining after this message today. Because I'll be honest, this is a tough one. And some of what you're going to hear today, um, especially if you've come from another church that's smaller than ours, um, it's going to make you wrestle with some things. And it's going to cause you to really kind of figure out what you think and what you believe about the church. And so just get ready. I'm trying to give you a heads up, all right? So a group called the Hellenists complaining against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected. Now, that raises some questions for us. First, who in the world are the Hellenists? Well, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews born outside of Palestine who then later moved into the city of Jerusalem. Now, because they spoke Greek, right, they had their own language, um, they also had their own synagogues, their own customs, their own traditions, and so naturally, this group of people kind of gravitated toward one another. Secondly, who were the Hebrews? Well, the Hebrews were Aramaic-speaking Jews born inside of Palestine, and they too had their own synagogues, their own customs, their own traditions, and so naturally, they gravitated toward one another. And this gives us insight into question number three. Why were the Hebrews neglecting the Hellenist widows? Well, you need to know they didn't do it on purpose. 
It wasn't like they looked at these ladies and they went, ah, we don't want to help. We're just going to kind of sit over here and let somebody else do it. It wasn't done on purpose. These were women who had moved into the city of Jerusalem with their husbands in older age in hopes of dying in this holy city. Well, their husbands passed before them. And because women during this time couldn't have careers, couldn't own property, they were left to a life of poverty and relied heavily on the charity of the church. Well, we know from earlier in the series, this was a generous church in the book of Acts. I mean, they were selling off property and giving the proceeds to meet the needs of the poor. That included widows. So again, they weren't holding out on these women. This was an unintentional oversight that occurred as a result in the differences between these two groups of people in regards to culture and language. Are you with me? Look, if you've ever traveled outside the country to another country where language and culture are different, this will make sense. Uh, I still remember the first time I went anywhere where it was like very different from home. Uh, I was in Peru and South America on a mission trip. And the differences in language and culture resulted in some awkward moments between us and our Peruvian friends. Uh, I'll never forget going one morning to a local donut shop with another leader on our team who just so happened to be a high school football coach. And uh, this dude, he was like epitome of high school football coach, right? Great dude, loved Jesus, loved students, but he was intense, all right? And so we walk into the donut shop. He's a man on a mission. And he's trying to order his donut in English, but the problem was this Peruvian worker on the other side of the counter only spoke Spanish. And so he's trying to order, and this worker's just like glazed over, you know, blank stare. And so my buddy's strategy was, you know, maybe if I talk more slowly and more loudly, that will somehow translate. Give me the chocolate donut, right? That's what we were working with. And so in that moment, I'll never forget in that moment, you could just... Feel the distance that existed between us and the Peruvian worker on the other side of the counter. And it wasn't a distance created by sin. Nobody did that on purpose. There was a breakdown because of language and culture. This is what's happening in our passage. The church has grown. It's reaching all kinds of people. Things have gotten complex, and that presented a problem. These widows were being neglected. And so the apostles offer a solution. Look at verse 2. It says, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so here's the solution, right? The apostles pull uh, all the disciples, the entire church together, and, and they say this. And it almost sounds harsh at first. They say, guys, uh, we need you to know that we don't have the time nor the capacity to personally care for these widows any longer. Because we have other things and more important things to focus on. Now that offends some of us, doesn't it? Because some of us are those grace-oriented people, and our hearts break for the poor, and our hearts break for those in need, and that is a good thing and a beautiful thing. Don't ever lose that. Some of us in the room need more of that. But if you're that, pe- that person, you're probably thinking right now, what, what could have been more important to these apostles than personally caring for these widowed women? 
Well, two things, according to the passage. Prayer and preaching of the word. Prayer and preaching of the word. Listen, I need you to understand today that everything we do as a church hangs on prayer and the preaching of the word. And my friends, that includes our service to the poor. Like We can serve the poor all we want, but if it isn't rooted in prayer and, and God's word, then at the end of the day, we're kind of wasting our time. It's about prayer and it's about preaching the word. Um, this is why guys like me who do what I do and we stand on stages like this week after week. It's why it's so important for guys like me who lead churches like ours to do whatever it takes to help us remain focused on prayer and the preaching of the word. Now listen to me. That does not mean that I'm exempt from caring for people. It doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to help those in need. I do, all right? I don't have a pass. All it means is this. That prayer and preaching of the word for me has to take priority over every other aspect of ministry. All right, now I want to just say publicly today, if I can, uh, to all of you people in the room, all you leaders in the room who allow me to make those things my top priorities, I want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you. Because I know that there are many pastors out there that don't have the leaders around them that I have around me. And as a result, there's this expectation on them to be everything to everyone, to be everywhere all the time. And they kill themselves and neglect their families in the process. And again, I just want to say thank you because I have never felt the weight of those unrealistic expectations being put on me here. I have an incredible staff who helps to share the load when it comes to counseling, visiting the sick, going to the hospital, doing weddings, doing funerals, etc., uh, I have amazing elders around me that help to pray for, shepherd, and lead this church. I mean, there are group leaders right now sitting in this room who not only hang out with kids on Sundays and students on Wednesdays, but group leaders right now who open up their homes every single week to make sure that people in this church are loved, served, and cared for. And if you're one of those people, I just want to say to you, I love you and I appreciate you more than I can express in words because your willingness to invest in the people who make up this body, it allows me, and not that this is about me. Please don't hear me saying that. This ain't about me. I've told you time and time again, there's one name that is famous in this church and it is not James's name. It is the name of Jesus. This is not about me, but your willingness to serve our church the way you do allows me to focus on my primary callings as your pastor. Prayer, preaching the word. You see, this is what the apostles were attempting to get back to. Their solution was, uh, guys, we don't have the time or capacity, so we need to raise up seven men from among the body to care for these widows so that we can focus on prayer and preaching the word. And then they gave some requirements, right? They said to the church, don't just go out and find anybody. You need to find a certain type of man. And so three requirements as you look for guys. Number one, they need to have good reputations. People need to like them and have good things to say about them. Secondly, they need to be men filled with the Holy Spirit. Like in other words, there needs to be clear evidence of the Spirit's work in their life. And then finally, they need to be full of wisdom. So they need to know how to do some things on a practical level. You know, they need to know how to organize and administrate, lead, budget, recruit people, build systems, build structures so that ministry runs smoothly. Listen, I want to say to you, if you ever aspire to be a good godly leader in in any aspect of your life, uh, maybe it's here or it's outside of here, maybe you want to be a leader in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, students at your school, 
and you're wondering, like, what does it take to be a good leader? What does it take to be a godly leader? Well, these requirements provide a good starting place. You want to know how to be a good leader, a godly leader? First, grow in humility and holiness so that people actually have some good things to say about you. Like this whole idea and this mentality that that kind of exists in our culture today, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, I'm going to do what I want to do and be my own person. It's silly. You'll never have influence in the life of anybody if that's your attitude. Because good godly leaders care what people think. They're not people pleasers, right? But they're also, they also refuse to be men and women with poor reputations. So start there. Grow in holiness and humility so that you have a good reputation. Secondly, I would say, love Jesus, be filled with the Spirit. Love Jesus, be filled with the Spirit. Every single day, ask the Holy Spirit to go to work on you and to transform you more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And then finally, learn some things, right? Grow in wisdom. Pick up a book. Listen to a podcast. Learn some very practical things on what it takes to be an effective leader. If you'll focus on those three things... You never know uh, what, what doors God might open for you to make an impact for the sake of his kingdom. This is exactly what he did for these guys. I love it, man. The church goes out with these requirements, and as they're looking for men, God in his sovereignty leads them to seven guys who had proven themselves ready. Now look at verse 7. I want to show you the results of this solution being implemented to this widow problem. Check it out. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase... And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, let's leave that up there for just a moment if we can. And if you have your Bible in your lap, just look at the scripture in front of you, if you will. Um, Did you notice that there's no mention of widows in this verse at all? It's interesting to me. You know, you go from the problem, widows are being neglected, to the solution. Let's raise up seven guys to care for the widows. You might expect that when we hear about the results of this solution being implemented, that it would read something like, you know, hey, it worked, and the widows were cared for, and everyone lived happily ever after. Yet there's no mention of a widow in this verse. Why is that? Well, here's what's so interesting, and here's what catches my attention. Even though nothing about the widows uh, is explicitly stated in verse 7, this verse implies that the solution worked. I mean, think about it with me. If the disciples would have failed to reorganize and restructure leadership responsibilities so that they could give the ministry away to others and focus on prayer and preaching of the word, look, the word of God would have failed to increase. The number of disciples would have failed to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And chances are, a great many of the priests who became obedient to the faith probably wouldn't have become obedient to the faith under their ministry. But because the apostles were willing to step back and go, all right, this thing's gotten complex, and things have grown, and and things have kind of gotten out of hand, and we can't do everything that we used to do, we need to focus on a couple of things. What happened? They gave away other responsibilities. They focused on their calling, and the word of God went forth. And people came to faith, and even priests, men who once opposed Jesus, chose to follow him. How incredible is that? It's awesome. The question is, what do we learn from it? Like, what can a a 21st century church learn from a 1st century church about managing the complexity brought on by church growth so that we can both honor God and remain committed to one another and the mission he's given us? Well, I want to give you three things. Three things, and then we'll be done, all right? The first is this. We learn from this church that as our church grows and we reach new people, we've got to change our methods when necessary. We've got to change our methods 
when necessary. Uh, the church grew, and these guys realized, the leaders realized, we can't keep doing the same old things the way we've been doing them. Things have to change. You see, this was a church so committed to its mission that it was willing to change its methods so that the mission advanced. Right? The unfortunate thing with a lot of churches in our world today is this. They get so committed to their methods that, that they refuse to change those methods even if it means forsaking the mission. It's very sad. It's why right now in our country, out of the 330,000 churches that exist, almost 80% of them are plateaued or declining. It's sad. That's 264,000 churches in the United States right now who are either dying or reaching no one. And the thing is, like the mindset in a lot of those churches, not all of them, not all of them, please hear me, but a lot of them, the mindset is this. Well, you know, um, we've always done things this way, and so we're going to keep doing them this way until we're dead or Jesus comes back. And it's almost like they care more about their methods than all the lost people outside their walls who don't know Christ and are going to hell every day. It's sad. Or the mindset is, you know, what we did in 1985, it, it worked then. And so it should be working now. And if it's not working now, instead of blaming themselves, they start to blame people out there. The problem is with them, not with us. And so a lot of churches expect culture to shift around the church instead of the church deciding to shift around a changing culture. And look up here. Please hear me because I don't want to confuse you. I'm not talking here about changing the message. Are you with me? The message is the same. The gospel never changes. Jesus Christ, alive, crucified, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, the message never changes. But the methods to reach people with that message have to change over time. And we have to be a church willing to make those changes. Like, I don't ever want us to be a people who sit back and, and we're so bent on what we want to do and how we want to do it that we refuse to do what God's actually called us to do. I need you to hear me, and I want to be really clear if I can, all right, especially if you're new here. Listen, we are a mission-focused church. I need you to hear me. We hold very, very tightly to our mission. We exist to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus in order to help them become his followers. We hold very tightly to that mission, and we hold very, very loosely to our methods, which means that the one constant you can always count on here at Crosspoint is change. Something will always be changing. And I know some of you don't like that because you don't like change. And you wish things would just stay the same and you like safety and you like security. And I just want to say to you in love today, you have to get over that. You have to get over it. You see, the mission God's given us isn't about us. It's about a lost and dying world out there who needs to know the Jesus we know. So if getting the good news of the gospel to that world means that we change some methods as we grow and, and we attempt to take the mission outside of our walls, well, we got to be willing to change those methods regardless of how uncomfortable or unfamiliar it may be. We have to change when necessary. Number two, number two, we have to capitalize on problems that occur. This church experienced a problem, right? Things got bigger. Things got more complex. Problem happened. Uh-oh, we have widows being neglected. That they're missing out on the daily distribution. And in that moment, they had to make a decision. And it was this. Will we sit around and whine and complain and let this problem divide us and distract us from the mission God's given us? 
Or, or will we look at this problem and capitalize upon it and use it to help us get better? Can I just be clear here today? I, I want to always give you a heads up. Look, as our church grows and we reach new people, we're going to fail in some things. We're going to have problems that we didn't know were going to be problems. We're going to mess some things up. There are going to be some things to complain about. It's going to be messy. And so just write that down if you're taking notes. On November 16, 2016, James promised problems will come. They're going to happen. And when they happen, the decision we all have to make as the body called Crosspoint is this. Are we going to sit around and whine and complain and let those problems divide us and distract us from our mission? Or will we be willing to take a step back and for the sake of loving one another and loving people who don't know Christ, will we look at those problems and go, how do we use that to get better? How do we use that to continue growing in what God has called us to do? I pray that we're a church that falls into the latter category. I can't tell you how deeply it grieves me when I see people running from churches at the first hint of a problem. Right? And, and let me just say this so that we're clear. I'm not saying there's never a good reason to leave a church. Um, there are some good reasons to leave churches. Uh, I also think that a lot of people leave churches for some really silly reasons. And I don't want us to be those people, Right? I would rather us be those people who stick around and figure out how we can be a part of solutions to problems rather than um, feeding the problem that, that's taken place by bailing and walking out, right? I think this happens a lot in churches today due to this consumeristic mentality that still exists in the culture at large here where we live. You know, a lot of people still see the church as nothing more than a, a provider of spiritual goods and services. It's almost like, you know, a spiritual supermarket. And I'm going to show up and... You know, I might throw some money in a plate, but I'm going to consume and consume and consume and consume. And if something gets hard or a problem happens that I don't like, I'll just leave and go find another church to consume from. Okay, that was never God's plan for his bride. Can you imagine men in the room if somebody treated your wife that way? I think God, I just think God gets offended when we act like that toward his bride. The Bible talks about the church as a family. You know, Jesus is our older brother. We're sons and daughters of God. God's our father. It's a family. How many of us have a family in the room? Your family's jacked up, isn't it? You are laughing and trying, like you're trying to look serious because you don't want to make anybody mad, but you're going, yeah. Even if your family's like the most awesome family represented in the room today, you still have problems in some area, don't you? Families are messy. When you put a bunch of sinners in the same house together and expect them to get along Problems are bound to happen. The same thing's true in a church. We're just a bunch of broken, sinful people in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so when you put us together and ask us to do something that matters, it's going to be hard at times. But what we've got to be willing to do is this. We can't be those people who bail on the family. I'm going to walk out on these people, on my brothers and on my sisters. We've got to stick around and figure out how to capitalize on our issues to make this family stronger and better for the sake of the mission. And then number three, number three, we have to commit to caring for one another. And look, this is where it's going to kind of get weird for some of us because some of us have never been a part of a church where this has been so necessary and needed. What do I mean? Um, I mean that the people in the seats, as we grow and get bigger and reach more people, the people in the seats have to commit themselves to caring for other people in the seats. Are you with me? This is what we see playing out here in our passage for today, right? I mean, these guys, they, they stepped up and said, we don't have what it takes to care for all of you. 
And what catches my attention when I read this is verse 5. It said, what they said pleased the whole gathering. What they said pleased the whole So the apostles step up and they say, we, we can't care for everybody. And we can't care for these widows because we've got other things to do. And so what we need to do is raise up some people from among you to start caring for these women. We've got to care for each other. Now, can I ask you, if you were in the crowd that day, would those words have pleased you? If you were there and you heard the apostles say that, would you have been all right with that? Well, we'll do an experiment so that you can really know the answer. All right, here we go. You ready? Don't miss it. Look, uh, I, James, along with the other pastors and directors here at Cross Point, do not have the time nor the capacity to care well for all of you. But because I love you so deeply and care for you so deeply as your pastor, what I want to do and what we do currently is we're, we're going to raise up men and women from among us to make sure you're cared for. That's what we're going to do. I wonder how that sits with you. I wonder what kind of tension that creates inside some of us to know that me and the other leaders who are on staff on our church can't do it for everybody. You see, I told you earlier, right now we got 13, 1,400 people walking through our doors, and, and this is not about numbers for me. I'm just trying to help you to understand where we are. 12 to 1,300 people, uh, if you put everybody who makes up Crosspoint in the same room together at the same time, it'd be closer to 2,000 people. We got 14 staff. Eight of those are pastors and directors. Listen, eight people cannot care for almost 2,000 people effectively. It is humanly impossible. And this, my friends, is why we have to commit to caring for one another. It's a big difference between a, a golf or a basketball church and a football church. And it's not that one church is better than the other. Again, it's just that they have to function differently at different sizes. In smaller churches, um, which I've been a part of, pastors are typically uh, looked at as generalists. You know, they're expected to do a lot of things. They do all the counseling, visit all the sick, go to the hospital, the weddings, the funerals. They're there when the goldfish dies, you know, and they do all that on top of prayer, preaching, and leading. When a church grows and it becomes more complex, the complexity demands that the pastor and or pastors start operating more specialists. So instead of doing many things, they focus on a few things. And as I already stated, because of the sheer number of people showing up, the staff cannot effectively care for everybody. So that might leave you asking, well, James, how, how in the world uh, do I get cared for in a church like this? Well, the first thing is don't count on me or the other staff to do all the care. And as a guy who loves people and loves hurting people, you don't understand how difficult that is for me to say out loud. I wish I could be at everything. When people are broken and hurting and crisis hits and people die and people get sick, I want to be there as much as I can possibly be there. And I will be as much as I can. And our staff will be as much as they can. But here's what I can't promise. I can't promise that we'll be there every time. Which is why you need to walk with people who are going to be there for you every time. How does that happen in our church? Well, it happens through groups. You have got to get in a group. You hear me hound you on this all the time. Get in a group, get in a group, get in a group. You know, the crowd happens on the weekends. Church happens in the home. You got to get in a group. If you're not in a group, you're going to fall through the cracks. Something's going to happen. You're going to get mad because you weren't in a group and nobody knew what happened. You got to get in a group, right? I preach it all the time. And I'll illustrate the importance of you taking this step uh, with a personal story from my own life and then we'll be done, okay? Several years ago, I was on staff at a football-sized church. Four to 5,000 people were showing up every Sunday. And so I knew that if I was going to be cared for in that church, I had to get me and my wife into a group. The pastor of that church wasn't going to be able to do it all for me. 
And so my wife and I decided we were going to start a group with some other people that we served in student ministry with. And to this day, they are still some of our best friends. Well, I'll never forget um, how they stepped up for us during one of the hardest seasons of our married life. I'll never forget, it was a Sunday, Sunday, May 29th, 2011. Um, Church had just ended, and I was getting ready to head to summer camp with like six, seven hundred students in the ministry that I led at the time. And so I'm in a truck, I'm headed down the highway, and I get a phone call from my wife's cousin. And he proceeds to tell me, hey, your brother-in-law, this is my wife's younger brother, 23 years old at the time, um, Austin, he, he just he overdosed last night, suffered from a drug overdose. Well, that had happened before, so I hadn't thought, you know, I didn't think anything about it. So I just asked, uh, you know, all right, where is he? What hospital is he, is he in? Is he doing okay? And, uh, and what I heard back was, no, it's different this time. He didn't make it. And so I remember just pulling my truck over, and I called my wife, and through tears, I'm just telling her, um, Austin passed away last night. Didn't go to camp, went home, was with my wife all week. That was tough news to share. The thing that made it tougher is the fact that my wife was seven months pregnant with our oldest daughter when this happened. Girls never got to meet their uncle. But I remember our group and how they stepped up for us. You know, my pastor, he stopped by and prayed with me and my wife that afternoon. But it was our group who loved us well. They were the ones making dinner. They were the ones coming to our house late at night. They were the ones calling and sending the texts and checking on us. They came to the funeral home. They came to the funeral. They were the ones months after just, just calling and showing up and going, how are you? We're praying for you. What do we need? What can we do? That's what I want for you. It's what I want for every person who makes up this church. We have to commit to care for one another because I can't do it for everybody. That's what I want for you. Just again, as we close, I'll be real clear. As this thing gets bigger, the complexity will become greater. And the more complex all this becomes, the the more we're going to have to change and the harder we're going to have to work at remaining committed to one another and caring for one another for the sake of the mission. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help in that? Will you join me? Father, we love you. And we are so grateful for your word. God, even when it's tough. God, I thank you for stories like the one we looked at today that cause us to wrestle. And to wrestle with what your word means for us and where you have us right now. And God, it's so clear to me that that, that story is so applicable to this season we're in. And God, we're just saying before you today and to you today that we need your help in getting this right. God, there's too much at stake for us to get it wrong. And so, God, don't let this ever become about us. God, would it start with me? God, rip any pride or selfishness out of me that exists in me for your glory and for the sake of these people. And God, for the people in this room, God, rip pride and and selfishness out of them for the sake of one another and for the sake of those outside our walls who desperately need what we have. God, we want to be the church that you dreamt of when you established it in the first place. We want to be that church that is so centered on our calling and our mission that we refuse to let anything pull us away from it. And so God, would you do in us whatever it is you need to do so that we become less and Jesus becomes more. 
instill in us humility, instill in us holiness. God, help us to be those people who consider the needs of others before we ever consider our own. God, we want to be like Jesus, and we want the world to see the truth and reality of who he is through our lives. And so, God, would you just take Crosspoint and continue, God, even through these growing pains that we're going to experience. God, continue to shape us and mold us into the people you have called us to be. Lord, thank you for allowing a bunch of broken, sinful people like us to be a part of your family. I pray that that never ceases to amaze us. God, we're grateful for your love, and we love you more than we can express in words. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.